Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is best-selling author Chuck Klosterman. He is the author of eight books of nonfiction and two novels, and he is a renowned music critic and was a co-founder of one of the greatest websites of all time, Grantland. His newest book is Raised in Captivity, fictional nonfiction published by our friends at Penguin Press. Chuck, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And first, I'm going to ask you a question that I'm asking everyone over these past few months as I'm uh, building an oral history of sorts via podcast recordings. How are you, Chuck, finding life in the COVID era? What has changed for you and how is it affecting Affecting things like the marketing of a paperback book. Sure. Well, okay. So my life has been completely different, even uh, which is surprising to me, because prior to the pandemic, if someone had said to me, "What is your life like?" I would say, "Well, you know, I don't really any place." Uh, work uh, in a cabin in my backyard many days I only talk to my wife and my kids and maybe my kids teachers um, I live a pretty solitary existence that, where most of my interaction seems to happen through testing or texting mm-hmm. and um, and I you know I, I am a writer which means that the majority of my life is spent alone kind of working on stuff so i would have thought that if this if someone had just described this to me i'd have been like well it probably won't be that different for me but it has felt completely different because what i'm now realizing is the thing that dictates the way you feel about your life is not what's happening but the agency you have over it and now i just feel like i very little agency over my own life um i i would say that this has been the most difficult period of my adult life, which I suppose in some ways reflects the fact that my life hasn't been that hard. Mm. But uh, this is certainly the first time uh, that the national news seems to be so close to me. Mm-hmm. That, that, that what's happening in the news isn't something that I find interesting or something I like thinking about, but something that seems to be uh, completely intertwined with my existence. So, it has been hard. I mean, my kids are six and four. Uh, that's a, they, they, I, this is the most time I've ever spent with them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I thought I spent a lot of time with my kids normally, but I realized it's nothing compared to basically this kind of like 24-7 everyday situation, which has also had some benefits. I mean, uh, uh, I don't think I've ever been closer to my kids kind of intellectually and emotionally and they love it and you know they're real happy uh, I think that they're going to look back on this period of time super positively my son will directly say I like this virus which is a <laughs> weird thing to hear mm-hmm. um, as, a ter- as a uh, as it applies to say writing though and, and publishing particularly mm-hmm. it's hard and yet uh, it's kind of equally hard on everybody I I do, I've done some of these sort of, uh, like, Zoom-oriented, like, kind of uh, cyber readings where, like, I'm basically doing, like, a book event uh, through a bookstore in Michigan or in L.A. or something. And, And they're fun to do, and I like the fact that they allow people from, like, Canada and places I would, you know, rural areas that I probably would never tour through are able to, to, to 
experience this, but it doesn't seem to sell any books. Mm-hmm. Like, like the, it just doesn't seem to have any impact whatsoever on sales. Um, so you almost got to just stop thinking about it. I mean, uh, uh, we're in a kind of an odd time uh, that has been accentuated by the virus, which is that it seems as though the book industry is now a little bit like the way the music industry was in the late 90s, where certain artists sell insane amount of product and everybody else almost sells nothing and that there isn't really much of a middle class um one thing that has happened with people not going to bookstores the way they used to is people just don't buy books by chance but there used to be a time when i started this where you spent a lot of time talking about the book cover because the idea was the book cover was your primary form of advertising. That somebody might walk into a bookstore, see sort of an arresting cover, and be like, hey, I wonder what this is, and just buy it, having had no idea that they had any interest in the subject of the writer. That doesn't really happen now, because it's all online. People are only buying books they already know about, and that's kind of accentuating the gap between established authors and unknown authors. But I don't know. I don't see any way that can be fixed right yeah it's definitely interesting times and chuck i have a a four-year-old son at home so i identify with much of what you're saying about your kids there um before we dive into your book or your books rather i have a couple of other questions one what is your favorite album of 2020 so far maybe a couple of your favorites if you can't narrow it down to just one Oh, well, of, of from this year? Or my favorite records from this year? Um, well, you know, uh, my music consumption is different than it used to be because of the way the, 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 the structure of, of music consumption has changed. Now that I have Spotify and these things and I'm not buying physical media, I tend to be going backwards in time. Hmm. Like, now that I have access to all these albums, which I would have probably have thought, well... Can I really justify, you know, buying the second Cactus record? Can I really justify buying some of these Bill Evans albums that I just heard about? Now I can listen to all of those. So if I listen to a new record, it's often because not just everyone's talking about it. Like I listen to the new Fiona record, Fiona Apple record, you know, I listen to the new Dixie Chicks record, I listen to the new Bob Dylan record. Um, it's we're also in kind of this this odd period where during this virus it seems like no records get bad reviews like every record that comes out is just this rate like people almost killing themselves trying to show that they can still find joy in art um so uh it's very odd almost every record i listen to from 2020 that people are talking about is somewhat underwhelming compared to the way it seems to be positioned taylor swift's record i listened to that was good um but i don't have like a it's not found some record that's new this year that I'd like, aha, I would have never found this otherwise, and now I have. I'm not really like that anymore. I mean, I'm almost 50. Like, you should be telling me what kind of music to listen to. And Chuck, jumping uh, topics before we jump into your books here, who do you think will win the NBA championship in the bubble? I think it will probably be Milwaukee. Yeah. I think that uh, that they uh, probably the they were probably it's kind of well, well it's an interesting deal because okay so we're we're in this bubble and it's actually working great okay I think the games have been uh, extremely entertaining no one seems to be getting COVID unlike 
you know, what's going on with baseball and college football and stuff. It seems like it's, it's actually working. However, it's a real weird scenario, right? These guys are all playing on the same court. They're not living their normal life. It's you know, very strange. It almost has to be a situation where for people to view this you know, season as remotely legitimate, it's almost got to be Milwaukee or maybe the Lakers, maybe the Clippers. If anybody else wins... Yeah. it's going to be assumed to be some kind of reflection of the weirdness of the scenario. Like, if Portland makes the playoffs and beats the Lakers, it's not going to be perceived the way it would have been perceived if that had happened in reality. <laughs> so, uh, like, in some ways, I'm almost hoping Milwaukee wins just because it will make the season seem credible. Right. Right on. Um, yeah, part of my... Uh brain wants to say you know clippers bucks and part of it wants to say you know like nuggets versus celtics or something i don't know um it's interesting because i'm curious what you think of this why do you suspect the games have been so good well um i mean i think you have everyone living in this bubble not able to go out you know drinking or to clubs or to do anything you know hanging out with family any of these things which can take a lot of time um and um you know effort and and brain power and i think everyone's just in uh, this one closed environment able to focus on the game um and I think just having no distractions there with four months off, which helped everyone, you know, probably I mean, get that, healthy. That's possible. I mean, it would be very interesting if, say, we return to normal NBA action at some point, either, mm-hmm. you know, next season or the season after. And, like, what if TJ Warren's bad again? Right. <laughs> like, if he, what if it turns out he's only really great if he's inside an enclosed bubble? That would be a confusing scenario, but yeah. Yeah, I, I imagine TJ Warren just practiced really hard for this whole four months and was, you know, ahead of everyone else. But, you know, he's from Raleigh here. He played at NC State. Um, mm-hmm. So we kind of expect him to be good. Um and now he's kind of proving us all right, which is fantastic. But uh, now that we've talked about these other things, let's talk about your books. And before we talk about your newest book, Raised in Captivity, I'd like to talk about one of your older books, Killing Yourself to Live, which came, sure. yeah, and this came out when I was uh, managing a large bookstore in San Francisco uh, several years ago. This book is about the demise, the death of rock stars accidentally and otherwise. I picked it up because of my interest in Kurt Cobain. Since this book was released, we have seen the death Death of so many frontmen of the other bands of this era, Lane Staley, Scott Weiland, Chris Cornell. Do you think this is something that you could have predicted at the time that you were writing this book, um, having written about Kurt Cobain and being a scholar of rock and roll? Well, you know, I guess predicting the death of Lane Staley, I possibly, that's possible. I could not have predicted the suicide of Chris Cornell. That seemed completely. Uh, he seemed very well adjusted and very happy right before that happened. I mean, what has sort of emerged from this is the realization that grunge, or what we called grunge, was pretty much the deadliest genre of music that there was. Mm-hmm. I mean, the number of significant people, I mean, two people from Alice in Chains, one person from Soundgarden, one person from Nirvana. I mean, like, really, Pearl Jam is really one of the only major acts from that world to come out unscathed. Now, why is that? Well, I mean, that this could be a direct reflection of the amount of heroin 
that was in that world you know it's like we're talking about this kind of opiate crisis now in all these different places across the country i wonder if that in some ways can be understood through the music scene of seattle during this period because it didn't just cause people to overdose it sort of changed people's personality like like they're their view of what was of the value of their own life seemed different than say the metal scene in the 80s or the pop scene that came after um, I uh, I do think that the, that historically like the grunge era is worth investigating for these almost non-musical reasons um, it is also possible that the death of Cobain um, like it's if that somehow uh, enforced the musicians' own view of what they were doing, because you know that was a was a, an interesting thing. It was the first really massive uh, subculture of music that kind of self-identified with the idea of being a rock star as negative. That this is like a bad thing, and then all these guys became rock stars, and were then sort of forced to kind of grapple with this idea that this thing that they viewed as you know, kind of almost repulsive and unlikable was who they were by default. Um, it's uh, it's it's a it's an interesting thing. It was an interesting time. I mean, you know, it's uh, I, I will. Uh, I wonder what how, like as we move forward in time, and you know, it seems like rock music continues to kind of recede from the culture. I wonder how much memory of that 91 to 95 period will exist kind of historically, but yeah. I do. Thank you very much, Chuck. Now, uh, let's dive into your newest book, Raised in Captivity. This book is filled with uh, short shorts, micro doses of the straight dope, as the book jacket says. Um, First, to dive uh, straight to a random line in the very middle of the book, uh, what kind of person memorizes Drake lyrics on purpose? Uh, what kind of person does? I mean, somebody who somebody who uh, who views uh, the music of Drake as being pretty meaningful, which is a weird sort of perception to have for somebody who experienced pop music uh, over time. You know what I'm saying? It's like, and, and this is and this is not the first time this has happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, like when I wrote the book Fogger Rock City, and I guess I was like 19. 98 and 99 I was writing about these hair metal bands I now realize how insane that must seemed to critics who had worked in the 70s mm-hmm. to suddenly see that, that they saw this music emerge and it seemed like a full simulation of all the things that they had believed to be for whatever reason artistic important and now here it was some time had passed and people who grew up with that music were saying oh no there's not that much difference you know in many ways between motley Crue and you know led zeppelin and all these things um must have just seemed crazy to them and i understand that now because i've seen the same thing happen mm-hmm. <laughs> where now it's so often I, I i see criticism and analysis of music that to me it, it almost seems like well this is somebody they've got to be doing a bitch or something they can't actually think that about this but then i recognize people thought the same thing about me so that's just how it goes right right and 
Chuck, the first story in this collection is the title story, Raised in Captivity, and it takes place on an airplane. A man on the plane has to use the lavatory, and in the lavatory he finds a puma. Uh, I have to ask, what was the genesis of this story? Well, you know, even though I've written those other books that are technically memoirs, there's I think I have two or maybe even three books that are classified as memoirs. I wouldn't really agree with that, but that's what the publisher put on the label. Even though I have these books that are memoirs, these short stories are much more personal in a way. Like, uh, in many ways. Like, it's probably, a, uh, you know, when you, when you would say with killing yourself to live, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's sort of a way to talk about the external life that I have, the way that I am seen, almost, and almost performing the caricature that I am perceived to be. Where, when you do fiction, it's a real interior thing. It's just how your mind works, you know? And, and what uh, what that story is about is kind of the confusion of realizing that your life has changed and has put you in this position now where you're a completely different person because of sort of your wealth and your privilege and all of these things that didn't seem related to you. Someone else made that decision. And because someone else made that decision, um, you are then kind of accepting their rules. But the reality of life that the shared reality that doesn't change and that is the puma Mm -hmm. like the puma is the world the puma is how life actually is Mm -hmm. and then the conversation that the character is having with the old man or the older man on the plane is sort of how it feels to accept that you are now going to live by these kind of different parameters in exchange for the life you want. Right. And, you know, um, continuing along these lines, at the end of the story, the man who spots the puma and the man he's been conversing with, the older man that you mentioned, they see a woman heading for the restroom. The man who spotted the puma feels like he needs to say something, but the man next to him discourages him from doing so by saying, that's not my problem or yours. We're all in this together. And Chuck, I can't really think of a more appropriate story for the current times that we're living in, uh, nor a more appropriate ending. Someone sees another human being heading for disaster, and rather than insist upon preventing that disaster, declines to do so while simultaneously accepting the philosophy that we're all in this together. Um, was, Was the class kind of angle what you were thinking as you were writing this ending in that line, or was there something beyond that? Well, yes, although, you know, you don't want to make it so obvious. Like, the way I always view it is I'm writing things that are personal, but I want them to be consumed by people almost as general. Like, my intention is that the average person who reads that story is reading it um, basically at a, like, on the level of text. Like, it's people are on a plane and there's a puma in the bathroom and isn't that weird? Almost like a Twilight Zone episode or something. Mm. What they interpret it to mean, I sort of give them that. They can do that. Mm. Like, they, it's like, it does, they don't, this is one of the things that why it's so much more 
kind of like freeing to write fiction as opposed to nonfiction. In nonfiction, if you're trying to get an idea across about, say, economic class, and you try that, and people read it, and they don't know what it's about, or they think it's about something different, it has failed. Mm. Like, you're, when you're doing nonfiction, you're saying, like, I'm trying to forward this idea, and I'm trying to make this argument, and this is the facts, and believe this. Where in fiction, it doesn't have to be like that. Like, it does, nobody has to read many of my stories and feel the way I feel about them for the stories to succeed. If they just find them entertaining, if they just find them kind of weirdly funny, if they find them confusing, but in a way that's satisfying, that's enough. Like, any meaning that they sort of get from them um, that's all just like a bonus you know it's uh, I, I'm not trying to convince anyone of anything in these stories I'm writing them because I'm compelled to do so and I, I like it and I feel very lucky that I have a life where I get to do that um, but I don't I, I, I it's not if somebody reads that story and or say, say someone's listening to this podcast and they've already read the book and they read that first story and they were like, I didn't think that at all. Hmm. That doesn't mean that they got it wrong or that I mind. Like they can kind of think whatever they want. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Chuck. Listeners, we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor and then I will be right back with Chuck Klosterman. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name, but you'll be part of a much different story. One that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Chuck Klosterman, author of Raised in Captivity, published by our friends at Penguin Press. Chuck, I next want to talk about the story Execute Again. Uh, In this story, a school gets a new football coach, and the team spends the first several days with this new coach not practicing, but discussing Zen Buddhism and Kierkegaard's theory of repetition, amongst other things. Um... The football team is only to run one play all season long, which involves, and forgive me if my memory is not serving me correctly, uh, the quarterback dropping back, handing the ball off to the halfback who's going in one direction, then handing the ball to the fullback that's going in the opposite direction, who then hands the ball off to the tailback who's going in a third direction. And because of gravity and assorted other factors, the play produces something like 2.7 yards every single time. Uh, For the first few games, this team doesn't have the play down and they lose all of their games until they mathematically eliminated from the playoffs but then they win and again and again by such widely increasing margins that they end up setting records Uh, my first question chuck about this story is if the coach stuck around would the team be able to pick up where they left off or would they have to learn the process all over again because seniors will have graduated uh, and freshmen will have entered the program well, you know, it's not that kind of story, okay? It's not the kind of story where you look at it and you'd be like, okay, so uh, 
uh, you know, what is the uh, what is the potential future this would have had? This story is enclosed. Okay, so in, in, within the confines of this story, the coach cannot stick her out. <laughs> he has to leave. The I, the, I mean, you know, how do these things end up happening? So I'm just sitting around imagining. I think about football or whatever. About how interesting it would be to create some play that always gained 2.7 yards, never really more, never less, but always 2.7. So if you ran four times in a row, even though the defense knew it was coming, you'd always have a first down and you'd become this kind of unstoppable thing. Mm-hmm. Like, so that's where it begins, right? Just kind of me imagining this, and then trying to sort of create a play in my mind um, that's described, although not so perfectly described, that somebody could, say, sketch it or make a schematic of it on paper. That would be impossible, okay? But they have a general sense of what this would look like, kind of like a, like a, almost like a swirling motion. Um, and then I thought, well, so let's say this happened. Let's say somebody was doing this. What would it mean? What would it mean to succeed by doing the exact same thing over and over again, mechanically, and kind of without the idea of any kind of conscious thought or plan or freedom? Um, almost sort of like a, I don't know, like a Calvinist view of, of, of how one could go through life. Um, and how would that affect people? And that's sort of what the story ends up being. You know, it's, it is, uh, you know, the reason these stories are called like, you know, like fictional nonfiction or nonfictional fiction, however you want to look at it. Um, I'm writing them as if they're nonfiction because that's what I prefer to read. The way the story is delivered is the same way I would have written a story about a football team like this if it existed. Um, but it's outside of reality. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know what happens with any of these characters uh, beyond the story itself. And I think it's what you're bringing up is a real interesting question. I mean, like, say someone reads uh, The Corrections by Jonathan Franzen. Do they think that uh, when they finish the book and they get by the last page, do they imagine how those characters exist from that point on? Or do those characters only exist as words on a page? And I, I, I think about this a lot. You know, it's like I wrote a novel called The Visible Man. And in the in the end of that book, uh, the main character just kind of just disappears. And people will ask me, like, well, uh, so where did he go? Like, are you writing a sequel to this? Is that why, you know? And I'm like, no, 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 I, I that's not how I think about it. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like I, like, only things that I am concerned with is what I write. Anything else that somebody imagines, like if somebody is, you know, reads The Wizard of Oz and imagines an entire life for Dorothy after she gets back, well, that's fine. You can do that. You have the complete freedom to do that. Like, the only thing I can control is what I type. Everything else is up to the person, you know? Yeah, and you know, sometimes you have books like uh, The Leftovers, where the characters cease to live on the page and continue to live on the TV screen. Um, yeah, that's, that's an interesting deal. Or like, or, or sort of now, like a Game of Thrones mm-hmm. or whatever. Right. Like, who who actually can decide? I always thought this was interesting, just with like these new Star Wars movies. You know, it's uh, so George Lucas sells Star Wars to to Disney and now they kind of have control over it. But, uh, you know, it's, it's odd. In my mind, I sort of feel like, even though I'm not a huge George Lucas fan, 
I still think that he should decide, or he's the only one who knows what happens to Luke Skywalker. Mm-hmm. He's the only one who knows what happens to these people uh, because they are his characters. Anybody else can just sort of speculate. Mm-hmm. But when you put it into a movie and you sell tickets and people go, that kind of becomes canonical. I have mixed feelings about that. Right, and that's why I asked the question, Chuck, because you're the only one who knows what happens to the coach. Um, but my my second question about this story, execute again, is about all of the players uh, who are on this team. All of them went on to become very famous and successful in their fields in the various arts and sciences, largely in theory, uh, because they learned the value of focus and repetition. Uh, Everyone that is except the narrator by the narrator's account, uh, but we learn that the narrator is allegedly a serial killer uh, who has possibly killed 200-something people, which in America at least would make this narrator extremely famous. Uh, what do you think? What it, What is this story telling us about the craft of serial killing and the position of our culture of the serial killer? Well, I mean, it's not saying anything about the craft of serial killing. I guess what I'm saying is that well, the way the other characters have been successful in positive things like medicine and architecture and literature, mm-hmm. he is equally successful at killing people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the that uh, I I. I that, what it, what it's basically saying is that okay, so if there is. The, the, the key to this is not just the repetition of the, the, the act. It is the wholesale belief in the value of that repetition. It is almost cult-like. Okay? It is cult-like. This idea that, that once you believe that the thing that you're doing is the explanation for your success, well, all you need to do then is do that thing like if you if you if you conclude that 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 is the um is the act and not the the virtue you know uh then the act is kind of all that's necessary uh i I suppose if it's about the only thing it would teach us about the craft of serial killing is is like it's it just shows that uh in society some things are viewed as positive and some things are justifiably viewed as negative and success at a negative thing is not what we consider success. That is what we consider insanity. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Chuck. I now have a couple of questions about a couple of stories where I am wondering if the perception of them may have changed uh, from the time they were written and initially published to the present day. Maybe so, maybe not, but I think it is an interesting discussion either way. And the first of these stories is toxic actuality. Uh, In this story, two professors are walking through a quad, speaking of an issue that one of them had with a complaint a student had about a text being racist, a text, a book that was being taught in the class. Uh, The professor counters no, um, the text is about racism. Uh, The student counters that this might have been the author's intent, but that the language itself is racist because the author didn't recognize his privilege. The other white students agree the whole class is white. Chuck, first, did you have a text in mind when writing this passage that the professor was teaching um and two oh no uh, no. there's tons of texts like that i mean that's absolutely this sort of scenario happens constantly now Mm -hmm. yeah and what is the teacher trying to point out about his class and this particular student who has filed a complaint against him 
what is the what is the teacher trying to point out? The to teacher is trying in this scenario with the with the teacher. Okay, so we have two te- we have two educators, and mm-hmm. they have sort of differing views on this. One, the younger one, is sort of of the opinion that this is becoming impossible to sort of have intellectual discourse because you can't even discuss certain ideas uh, that the idea itself is seen as toxic. Mm-hmm. So that that there is no place so for a debate over the value of the book, uh, the book itself is deemed as lacking a value because of the language the writer had used. The other instructor is basically saying, I guess this is probably closer to my view. It's like, well, you can believe that. Hmm. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because if you can't... It's not a rational argument. The way the the way the world appears to different generations does not happen for rational reasons. If you look at like say the greatest generation, baby boomers, Gen X, millennials, Gen Z or whatever, you look at these different things, you look at you compare and contrast their views of the world. They are not reflections of any kind of underlying truth or reality. They are reflections of what uh, uh, sort of the cultural ideology of the time was, and that they're going to filter the same questions through these different mechanisms. And it doesn't matter if your argument is that, well, um, uh, uh, that seems backwards to what I believe or whatever, and here's my justification as to why. That's not how the world works, and it takes a, it's a hard thing to accept, right? It's a hard, it's a hard thing to get used to the idea that, that the way uh, the kind of the collective understanding of something is um, is completely arbitrary and that it is not in any way um, uh, uh, some kind of uh, extension of of what makes sense you know and it's it's uh, you have to just kind of make this choice that either I'm going to kind of accept this new world that these people have created or live in a different one those are the only two options right thank you chuck and the second story along these lines that i want to discuss is the enemy within i spent my time with this excellent book raised in captivity jumping back and forth from the physical book and the audiobook the audiobook by the way which you partially narrate is fantastic there are several readers and everyone does such a great job oh thanks yeah, yeah. I, I, I appreciate you saying that absolutely um the audiobook for our listeners is available through our sponsor libro.fm and the purchase of this excellent audiobook supports your friends at quail ridge books or your av- other favorite local independent bookstore but chuck i was listening to this story the enemy within and it made me laugh so hard that i had to pause the audiobook pick up the physical book and make notes and highlight passages in the physical copy Uh, a character in this book is getting grilled about her boyfriend interrogated really about her boyfriend's musical tastes uh, viewing habits reading habits discussion habits and the culmination of the story comes when the person being interrogated cookie says can you please tell me why you need to know these things was henry in an accident and the interrogators say it is a bit more serious than that we have reason to believe that your boyfriend is fake woke and chuck Uh, That is Fake Woke with a capital F and a capital W. Can you tell us about the concept of being fake woke and what you were driving at with this story, The Enemy Within? Well, it's pretty self-explanatory, I think. It's just, you know, it's... The one thing that has... uh, You asked me, like, have these my ideas about any of these things changed in the time since the book came out? Hmm. Um, The thing is, uh, like... uh, 
when I was writing these stories, it was in like 2018, I guess. Mm. And and um, uh, the use of the word woke seemed kind of funnier. Mm. Like it seemed like a funnier thing because it was like, it was this, you know, I, it was, uh, it, it, the, it's, it was still at the point in the language where it wasn't adopted by all people. So it was sort of this fringe part of language. Mm. And then when you'd hear people outside of that use it, it was always like kind of discomforting sort of, it was like, that's kind of weird. Now it's different. Now that word is completely integrated with the way sort of the world is viewed. Um, but what I was really talking about in that story is just the idea of like, um, you know, um, uh, what is worse? Uh, having the wrong views or pretending to have the right views. Mm -hmm. And I'm not necessarily saying that the views expressed in the story are right or wrong. I'm, I mean, that's, the, 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 the central question goes beyond the idea of wokeness or anything. It has to do with, like, like authenticity in a way. Like, is, uh, uh, do you have greater integrity to have... Is it, is it, does somebody with, with what is perceived socially as having the wrong views, does that individual have more integrity than the individual who's like, well, my views uh, are flexible and whatever sort of the conventional way to think about something is right now, I'll do that. You know, like, I'll, like you tell me what to think and I will really believe that. Um, that's sort of what I'm talking about in that story. Right. Thank you so much, Chuck. And finally... I want to take a step back in the collection chronologically and ask you about the story Every Day Just Comes and Goes. This is a story about time travel and the absurdity of time travel. And what I mean by that is, if someone were genuinely time traveling to find you because the future needed you specifically for some unknown reason, how would they explain this to you in such a way that you would believe them? Is it even possible for a person with a mostly rational mind to be persuaded that they are needed in the future right now in the worst possible way i thought this story was a fantastic thought experiment chuck like so many of the others in this collection could you tell our listeners what you were doing with time travel in this story every day just comes and goes well okay uh one of the I, I, i've written a lot about maybe not a lot but some i've written about time travel in my life in, in my essay collection uh even the dinosaur, there's an entire essay built about sort of the, the complexity of thinking about time travel as a way, as a means of entertainment. Um, and one of the things that's always interesting about time travel, of course, is that what are the what are the arguments against the ability of someone to go back in time? Well, part of it has to do is no one's ever come back, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you'd think that if we could build a time machine in the future, somebody would have went back to 1975 at some point or whatever. So, if someone were to come back, uh, in time and talk to you that would mean a bunch of stuff one thing it would mean is that their goal must have succeeded like they must like you if someone comes back from the future and says you got to come with me uh, it almost suggests that you must go like you or eventually you will go and then the character in this story is being every day a man from the future tries to convince him to travel through time and every day he says no and then manages to kind of forget it, just kind of forget that this has got to happen. Um, and there's a lot of things like this in life, you know, where it's like uh, there are certain things that we're able not to think about, even though we know they're inevitable. And every day we manage to just kind of bypass 
all the things that remind us of these inevitabilities. Um, so, you know, like a lot of stories, it's technically about one thing and the subtext really about something else. But, yeah, I'm glad you like it. Uh. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Chuck. And I could talk to you about these stories all day long. This collection is the exact collection I was looking to read at this moment in 2020. I wouldn't have known it was what I was looking for when I walked into the bookstore. But listeners, let me just tell you now that if you were looking for intricately thought out and well-written bite-sized stories and thought experiments raised in captivity by Chuck Klosterman is the book you want. I have been speaking... Thank you very much. I thank appreciate you. that. Yeah, thank you for writing it, Chuck. I've been speaking with Chuck Klosterman, author of Raised in Captivity, which is published by our friends at Penguin Press. Chuck, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks a lot. All right. Once again, I would like to thank Chuck Klosterman for joining me. Copies of Raised in Captivity can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space, to get one month of free audiobooks and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries and this has been Booking.